The following is a production of the Event Safety Alliance. Welcome to the Event Safety Podcast. This is Steve Edelman speaking. I am here today with Jim Digby, the president of the Event Safety Alliance, Janet Celery of Celery Health and Safety in Ontario, Canada, and Ethan Gilson of Entertainment Rigging Services in Boston, along with Jacob Warwick, who is keeping everything together for us. And today we are going to talk about two things which are, alas, timely yet again, which is people meeting an unfortunate and on rigging at shows. So specifically, um, we're doing this podcast in the wake of a man who fell from the rigging uh, in the run-up to Coachella last week, and the final results of the coroner's inquest from the Radiohead rigging death from several years ago. So this is, alas, timely, and one of the things that we're going to talk about is why we're having this conversation yet again. Haven't we solved these problems in an industry where safety is supposed to be redundant, where everything is a belt and suspenders approach? How is it that people are falling out of rigging, even if someone fails to clip in, even if they're not wearing their PPE, even if if they make a mistake or are cavalier about their own safety, how is it that there's not a risk manager standing by, a supervisor, someone who's in charge of safety, of being the grown-up in the room, saying, wait, before you climb up into the truss, you've got to be wearing your harness, you've got to be protected. How is it that we are still having this conversation? So that's what we're going to talk about on today's podcast. And first, we're going to go to Janet Celery, who was actually at the coroner's inquest in Ontario, Canada this past week. Janet, what did you see there? Uh, So it was a really moving experience to join in and to listen to. I was there for the final submissions of the inquest in which the coroner's counsel gave a summary of the evidence that they had heard and the recommendations that they were preparing to be submitted to the jury. And then each of the lawyers who had uh, represented the various parties who had standing spoke about what they felt were the most critical causes. Um, And I have to say the most moving part of that was listening to Scott Johnson's father. So Ken Johnson, who uh, is Scott's dad, uh, got to speak at the beginning of when the Radiohead lawyer uh, was doing his bit. And it was, it was just so heartbreaking to hear from his perspective as a scaffolding inspector in the UK, uh, how easily prevented Scott's death would have been. And I think it's important for us to just reflect not just on the evidence, but also the fact that seven years ago today, Scott was doing the job he loved as a drum technician for a band he loved, Radiohead. And in those short weeks between April and June of 2012, there were failures that led to his death, easily prevented failures. So additionally sad about that, Janet, is, you know, Scott was not in control of the circumstances that took his life. He had no ability to make decisions 
about what was going on over his head or how that was constructed. He had no voice in that matter. And, you know, one could, one could postulate that he died of circumstances out of his control, which is Indeed. completely unacceptable that no one had a regard for the lives of the folks that were on the ground underneath him. Well, and he would have trusted the people who designed the structure, who built the structure, who inspected and approved the structure. And in each of those cases, in this particular show, there were failings all along the way. And that's, and that's pretty much the nature of the beast for us all uh, in the entertainment space, is that we all have to rely on someone else to have done their job correctly in order to get home that night. And it may not always be, might not always be as catastrophic as a roof collapse, but there are any number of places in the, in the chain of events that happen uh, in building a show and performing on stage and, or having your conference uh, built around you that we're, each person in that chain is relying on someone else to have done their job to ensure that the thing that they did was done safely and correctly. Uh, and that goes all the way to food and making sure that there's, there's safe food on a show site, right? Mm-hmm. Let alone rigging overhead or fire safety or pyrotechnic safety or any number of the trade craft things in our business where the drum technician is not responsible for whether or not the pyrotechnics go off safely. Mm-hmm. And shouldn't be responsible for whether the roof stays up over his head. So how does someone like a drum technician um, feel comfortable walking on a stage every day in today's environment? How, do, how, does the, how does the musician know that unequivocally when he walks onto that stage, he's, the microphone's not going to shock him or that the roof is going to stay up over his head? How do we get there today? I think a lot of it has to do with um, clear responsibilities and people uh, taking taking it really seriously. If they're in a position, a senior position, that's where it starts. And they have to make sure there are people on site who have the expertise to look at all those different elements individually, that they're all right, but also how they interact and how the people who are going to be building or using or operating equipment, how not only how they do their own work safely, but the effect that it has on the people around them. And I think when the bigger the event gets, the more different parties involved, that's where you really see consequences for a lack of coordination and overall site supervision. Was, I think was, we need to do a better job with supervisors. So was one, I totally agree. And, and, and responsibility being starting at the very top, which I'm sure we'll get to. But wasn't one of the, was, was one of the results of the inquest that there should be oversight uh, oversight in some way? Mm-hmm. There was. So, so just to, to be clear, uh, the recommendations were presented by the jury. So the jury took all the suggestions, deliberated for a day and came back. And my understanding is this, that they essentially adopted what was presented to them, but those have not yet been published. Those will be publicly available on the coroner's website, but they aren't there quite yet. But yeah, a piece of it was that there needs to be Uh, proper oversight throughout the build. Uh, There was a lot of recommendations about engineering and also a really great one, which I hope goes goes forward, which is for a permanent working group. 
a permanent working group to talk about how to improve safety across the board in our industry in Ontario. So, you know, they were also looking at legislative changes, building code changes, um, guidelines for engineers, um, quite quite a wide range of, of uh, recommendations. But certainly having on-site supervision, it's critical. It has to happen. Janet, did you get the impression that any of the failures cited in the coroner's inquest were failures of knowledge, that there was simply something that people did not know that, you know, was something that wasn't already part of, of what professionals in our industry know? I would have said that it was perhaps a failure in terms of assumptions. So when you have uh, an engineer who's, and maybe maybe part of it was about understanding because when you have a design that doesn't match the structure and you've used it 30 times already, then there was kind of an assumption that, well, even though the parts don't match what's in the design, it's always kind of worked, so it's probably okay. And when pieces were missing, hadn't failed before. So, you know, it, when you have the person, the engineer who is charged with the oversight, the final inspection, who doesn't look carefully, that, you know, at every point there were failures. And, you know, that was sort of the final one that you depend on and you pay an engineer to do that inspection. And if they don't identify those failures, my understanding of the engineer's involvement or one of the understandings of the engineer's involvement is that, you know, they're not necessarily final oversight, right? Their recommendations about which materials to use, how to safely guy off a stage, you know, what ballasting recommendations are just that recommendation. Here are the things that you need to do to be compliant with the engineer's um, specifications. That's and then full stop, and then that goes into the hands of the team uh, who would then be building the stage. Uh, for, a, that, ahead, for a stage of this size, the engineer certainly there was an expectation the engineer would check the entire build and sign off and approve that it met the design specifications before it was put into use. And that was a process already in place? In, in It was, but it was, um, so I believe what will happen going forward is that there will be an expectation of a second engineer doing a review, like a third party. Third party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, it, it's so reminiscent to me of the incident, which was the Event Safety Alliance's origin story, which was the Indiana State Fair roof collapse, which was... It was the consequence of so many people doing something that wasn't quite right, which individually would have yielded no harm. No one would have noticed anything, but rather so many people doing something wrong and there not being any overall supervision to catch the mistakes until finally the cascade of errors and omissions finally overwhelmed the safeguards and seven people died. And I'm just, I'm heartbroken to think that we're doing more or less the same conversation. That was August, 2011. Here it's April, 2019. I mean, is this just a cycle that's going to go on forever? Well, and, and, and the passing of the buck of responsibility on a multi-jurisdictional work site like Indiana, like 
Scott Johnson's case is that you know one hands off to the next, hands off to the next, and there's no clear line of authority. There's no clear, there hasn't been in the past, a clear, I'm telling you no line of authority to prevent the kind of um, accidents, these kinds of accidents from happening, right? That, that, that there wasn't a single point of, I'm in charge here in Indiana. And, and there were varying degrees of understanding of what was going to happen in the face of the weather. There were varying degrees of understanding of who was going to make that call. And there was no actionable plan. There were pockets of plans, but no one coordinate that, coordinated that plan across the, the uh, different stakeholders. And therefore, there was this paralysis of authority almost that uh, it's not my call, it's your call. I, I'm in your house. It's not, you know. And that led to death. And, and gosh, geez, that's eight, nine, seven years ago. We need to be beyond that by now. Janet, it's something that you said from the coroner's inquest really struck me, which is, you know, we've erected this stage 30 times, albeit 30 times wrong, but nothing's ever happened before. It is that that common sort of shrug of, well, you know, we keep having essentially near misses that we survive, so let's just keep doing it this way. I was actually reading an article in something called Improving Safety Culture, because I'm a safety nerd. Um, and there's a quote that struck me then and reminding me now, you know, based on your conversation, which I'd like to read. It's short. Um, it reads, over an extended period of time, the lack of any injuries for those who consistently engage in unsafe behaviors is actually reinforcing the very same behavior pattern that in all probability will eventually cause a serious injury. The principle being illustrated here is that the consequences of behaving unsafely will nearly always determine future unsafe behavior simply because reinforced behavior will nearly always tend to be repeated. In other words, that's how we got to last week. Yep. Yeah. And it's so pervasive. I, I mean, I'm gobsmacked that we're still talking. So I don't know exactly what it is um, in terms of legislative requirements across the United States, but in Ontario, Canada, there is a requirement for wearing hard hats and steel toes when you fall under the construction regulations, which includes load in, fit up, set up, lighting, hang, load out, tear down, strike. So those are activities that are identified as construction. And many, many places and many, many individuals have adopted wearing hard hats. It makes sense. There's overhead work going, you know, you should protect yourself. And yet every year I run into these little pockets of people and they're usually stagehands who have extensive experience. They've been at it for 30 years, but they've never been clobbered on the head. And those are the ones who won't put a hard hat on. And yet, they're not putting a hard hat on, especially when they're at a level where their department head influences the entire crew. Because it's so much harder to have the younger people wear their PPE when the people who that they're looking up to are not. Um, so even though there's tremendous success in the theater schools and the production programs with implementing PPE, 
the first time you put them into a theater where people are not wearing it, it really, it really kind of kills it. It's the purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also a failure of training of people on some of the basic PPE requirements. And Janet just mentioned something that uh, I, I tend to focus on, which is you have to wear a hard hat when there are people working overhead. Well, in realizing that uh, there may be some slight differences between Canada and the, and the States in the U S OSHA doesn't say you have to wear a hard hat when work is happening above head. What they specifically say is you must protect your head when the possibility of head trauma exists. So the example I usually bring up with people is you're doing a load in and you have a truss at a working height at trim and you've hung a bunch of fixtures. And instead of walking around the end of the truss to go upstage, you duck under the truss and you stand up. You think you're clear. You stand up too soon. You catch the barrel of a fixture. You catch the bumper of the line array. You catch the bolt of a C-clamp. You cut yourself. Yeah, it, it doesn't put you on the ground. Maybe it doesn't take you out of work for the day, but it does damage. You should have, according to OSHA, been wearing a hard hat in that situation. So it becomes this thing which we continually talk about of training the people and making people, as Jim had mentioned earlier, responsible not only for others, but also for yourself and saying, all right, there are small things that we can do to make sure that uh, we are protecting ourselves and affecting that cultural change. And it's the small things. If we do those small things, the hard hat, the high vis, the safety shoes, the safety glasses, that breaks down the process. And then once we have that as an established level, then the things that people perceive as complicated, fall arrest, crowd management becomes easier because we've, you know, proverbially, we've taken a chunk out of the elephant. Um, one of that's 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 really good, Eric. Uh, one of Janet's speakers at the ESA Canada launch took it one step further and and charged us with safety begins at home. So, when you are home, are you practicing safe behavior? You know, do, have you practiced um, the exercise of a lightning storm and taking your children or your loved ones to safety? Have you practiced what to do in the event of a fire and and, and oddly enough, just last night, we had tornado threats not too far from where I am. And and my daughter was really upset and needed to sleep with us and was uh, wanted the details at six years old, wanted the details about what was going to happen when the tornado came. And it made me realize that I hadn't done that. I hadn't practiced it at home. I hadn't talked her through. We're prepared. Here's why we're prepared. Here are the things that we're going to do. And it, and it just put this, rebrought Janet's conference to mind and, and the conversation with oneself that you have to have about, uh, yeah, am I really doing safety because I'm concerned for my safety and the others around me, or am I doing safety because that's the way I have to do it? So, Ethan and Janet, <clears throat> excuse me, you guys both do safety training and you're on site. You are the boots on the ground. Are you seeing any change in? people's adherence to basic safety rules. You know, Ethan, what you just said, you know, taking a bite out of the elephant. Are we seeing progress? I think we're seeing progress. We're just not seeing enough progress. Um, I think academic institutions in the States have done a significant job in improving their culture 
and how they're training students to work with PPE. I think the corporate world in our industry is a lot slower to embrace those things. I think, uh, and not to pick on Steve's profession, but I think there are a lot of corporations. Everyone else does. I'm trying to be nice. Um, (laughs) I think there are a lot of corporations that have been convinced that their liability exposure for providing PPE to their employees in certain situations is greater than if they played stupid and just ignored it. Oh, don't open that can of worms. (laughs) (laughs) But again, where do you start? Where can you do it? I mean, at a a company that I was uh, familiar with, I really pushed and pushed to say, why aren't we wearing hard hats on all of our load-ins and load-its? Just make it a rule. That's what the rule is. And and if you want to work first, that's what you do. And there was the, well, we got to get people to buy into it. You got to get people to agree to it. Well, at some point you say, we need to teach them what the right way is to do it first. And if you do that, people, that will start to affect the culture. Uh, I have a rhetorical question for you, Eric. And and it's really to, to highlight the point. Who's the mo- what's the most likely role on stage during rigging to get hit in the head by a shackle? Who's the most likely person to get hit in the head by a shackle? Yeah. Honestly? Yeah. I would say it's the guy standing next to the shackle case. <laughs> Other people throwing shackles at him. Which is typically the ground rigger, right? Yep. Why do I still see to this day ground riggers on the stage without hard hats on when all the stagehands have their hard hats on? Yeah, it, it, this is part of the this is part of the problem, and, I, and I'm not obviously I'm not steering that at you, but it, you know to make the point that there is there there is still in addition to the things that we're discussing here the ego factor, right? It's the same thing that drives a rigger to go in the air without a harness. It's the same thing that drives a ground rigger to be on the ground underneath a rigger without a hard hat on. There's still We still haven't gotten to a place where we've addressed the ego problem. It's only one of many of the issues in the chain of causation which cause people to die still on work sites. But it is one of the bigger ones. It's You've heard it as well as, as the rest of us. I've been doing it this way for 20 years. I'm not changing now. Who are you? Why do I care about what you've got to say? It is one of the biggest problems we face in this least sexy subject matter of our industry. And yet it's the most catastrophic problem, right? It, it's, the, it's that kind of mentality that gets us to a place where people are dead. And, and I think that's why we, we made the conscious decision the other day to, to step up our our language and our position on this sort of thing, enough is enough already. You're not proving anything to me by climbing up there without your safety gear on. You're not proving anything to me that you're dumb enough to leave your head exposed underneath work that's going on overhead. That doesn't make you make me want to hire you more. It doesn't make me look at you as though you're smarter. I, how is it that we're still here? It's just, it's so awful to me and so upsetting, I'm sure, for all of us. Well, I think particularly in rigging, uh, on the smaller scale, that riggers are looked at to be this 
hybrid between laborer and engineer. And we use Trust, which is a manufactured product where they give us data. And if we stay within that data, we should be okay. When you get that mentality and then you apply it to Toronto, for instance, where decisions were made, well, we can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. So we're going to do this, which is what we've always done. But the person who made that decision didn't know that they weren't qualified to do so. Didn't know that what they should have done was say, we're deviating from the engineer drawing. We need to talk with somebody who has more authority and more knowledge. And so the cultural change is not being afraid to ask questions, not being afraid to say, oh, I don't know the answer to this. And I'm fond of saying in my trainings that I'll get a student who asks a question that I don't know the answer to. And I'm okay with that. But I have resources. I have a network of people I've worked with, manufacturers, other riggers, that I will call at the next break and say, hey, someone posed this question and I never thought about it. That doesn't make me not as good as a rigger that I don't know. It means I'm human. And so we need to change that thought process of saying, you know what? I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know if this is okay. I'm going to get someone who's more qualified and we're going to figure it out to make sure that everyone goes home. And Ethan, if I could just add to that, I think uh, I'm not a rigger. I'm sure that will not come as a shock to anyone who knows me. I'm not a rigger, but I know that we have tools at our disposal that we didn't have 30 years ago. You know, when I'm, I don't know if you guys are in your worlds using load cells, but you know, now we have a piece of equipment that can take some of the math away and it can give you instant information. You know, I think things like that, you should go, hey, you know what, if if we're changing the load on something that was designed to to only take a certain amount, we need to understand what kind of load we're putting on here. And if there is a better way, a faster way, a more accurate way to learn that, I think people should be jumping in. That's a really good point. Um, Ethan, I'm very sorry. I had uh, someone else on my brain. I apologize. Um, uh, the, um, I, think that, I think you're absolutely right that there's a, uh, there's a generational shift that's happening. The equipment is better. That We know more than we used to know. There was the, um, you know, a, a much require, relied upon cowboy mentality to get shows done in the early days and just say generation one of, of doing large scale events because it was all new ground and, and it took the bold and it took the creative outside the box thinker. And it, it took people willing to take risks to get us to where we are today and, and, you know, to be applauded. But we're at a place now where we think we should know better, uh, but we're still behaving as though we're first generation. And, and I, 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 don't, I don't mean to sound as though I'm placing blame on anyone for that, other than us as a community collectively. How do we get ourselves past generation one thinking in a generation three world is the, is the thing that perplexes, I think, all of us is how is it that, you know, in, we use the argument of, of um, uh, corporate manslaughter in, in Europe, which is, which is, potentially a charge that a producer and or high-end responsible party, meaning 
the people paying the bills, could possibly be facing a charge of corporate manslaughter if they entice someone to do something that is against the recognized standards. Truck drivers going longer than they're supposed to drive. Bus drivers going longer than as the example. Um, and, and everyone in that chain of causation, if a bad thing happens, can be held legally accountable for the bad thing that went wrong. And I don't know, Steve, whether whether that carrot is being is being utilized here in the U.S. Are we are or in North America or anywhere else in the world? You know, if a person chooses to not follow safety protocol and someone loses their life as a result of it. Is everyone in that chain of causation potentially culpable at that point in time? Like, shouldn't there be leadership from the top when it comes to safety? Shouldn't the producer or the high-end dollar backer of an event also be wearing PPE and a hard hat on site as an example for everyone else to live by? Um, let me think about it. Yes, of course, yes. Leadership ought to come from the top. The law is actually built that way. So I'll drop just a little law on everyone. So podcast listeners, get ready. Um, We're talking now agency law. So somebody who runs a company or is in a supervisory position is making decisions on behalf of the corporate entity. That's the way it works under common law. So whether it's in the US or Canada or any of the common law countries, which comprise roughly half the countries on our planet, it all works the same way. Someone in a position of authority is binding the company. That means the person who is at the bottom of the food chain, whether they're a worker employee or an independent contractor working under someone else's corporate supervision, they are going to have liability only through their corporate employer. So who's gonna get sued? Everyone who has a decent amount of insurance coverage. Does that mean the the person who's actually you know, climbing up the rigging? Probably not, because with all due respect to you and me, we're not worth it individually. The corporate entities, the ones that have the big insurance policies, they're the ones that get sued. They're the ones that should get sued because they have the ability to break the chain of causation. Like we've been talking about with regard to Radiohead, we you know, went on the tangent about Indiana, nearly every catastrophic instance that you could name is the consequence of lots of different errors. Almost never is it just a single mistake. And so the law validates that anyone who could break the chain of causation, who could play a role in saving lives or treasure, they're the ones who will be legally on the hook for not doing so. So what does that mean in the case study of of uh, Radiohead or even more recently what just happened uh, at Coachella? Well, um, let me not predict what's going to happen with the death last week at Coachella. Um, I, I really don't want to do a post-mortem of that particular incident. Um, I wasn't there. I know that none of us on this pod were. Um, although we have all talked to people who were. But what is likely to happen based on what has happened in previous similar catastrophic incidents is once there has been an investigation by 
public safety officials, which in this case includes OSHA. The investigation results will be published in whatever manner is agency appropriate. At the same time, the family, the grieving family, is considering their options, which in our legal system includes hiring themselves counsel. And their counsel will be casting about for anyone who has any responsibility in the chain of authority, which either could have influenced the decisions about what PPE and harnesses were used or were not used, to supervision, to training, All of those people are someplace in the chain of causation, and my assumption is that if the family decides to seek a litigated remedy, their lawyer will be looking at all of those parties from the moment that the deceased was initially hired, trained, given equipment, taught to use the equipment, to that particular day when he was suiting up, Was there any training or briefing that day? What was the conversation when he was getting ready to climb into the truss? Was there anyone with him, anyone watching, anyone saying anything? All of those people potentially will be looked at as possible defendants in a lawsuit. In the American legal system, unlike in the UK, in the American legal system, we very rarely have criminal sanctions. Most likely, no one goes to jail under the American system. What we do in the States is we file civil lawsuits, which are for dollars, and the dollars in a wrongful death lawsuit, which is what this would be, um, can be very, very substantial. So, Ethan, let me come back to you and pose a hypothetical. If You put yourself in the mind of average rigger who's earned a place on the rigging call or on a tour or at a a corporate event as the rigger working for a company that he's in, you know, spent the better part of a decade or two working for that company. And the example at the top, the boss, the person he works for, the person who signs his paycheck, or the culture around that person who signs his paycheck is to be cavalier, and one could even argue sometimes arrogant about safety. How does that affect the downstream behavior from the person who owns the company or whose name is on the shackle? How does that, how does, how does poor leadership for safety at the owner level affect everybody else on the team? I think what it does is it builds a culture of telling employees that they are a commodity and not a value service, that you build a culture within your company where you you can be replaced. And so as an individual, you start getting concerned of, well, I need, I need this position, I need this job, I need this income, I have to support myself. Um, I can't, I can't change it because it's coming from the top. And so people just accept it. That becomes, as we've stated, that becomes the norm. And it's kind of ironic because especially with rigors, we know that people in our industry um, have a certain, I'll say bravado. You can call it ego, swagger, whatever it is. When you come to rigors, 
That is the small group at the upper end of that, in part because of the risk associated with what they're doing. And that, as you said, from that generation one, the uh, Rocky Paulsons and the Roy Bickles, who literally were making it up as they went and would walk into a venue and say, I'll just climb this beam with a rope in my teeth and we're going to get it done. Um, and don't get me wrong. They, they did an amazing job, but within the time period, they were doing something that was brand new. And um, we've come so far in terms of our knowledge base. So it goes back to that person working for the employer saying, I'm not a commodity. I'm a person. I provide value and service to this organization. And that has to be recognized. And I can provide that service at other locations. And to to know what your self-worth is, is a very important thing. And what I mentioned in that, that the, you know, it being kind of ironic is that you're taking a person who has that ego, that swagger to say, I'm the rigor and I'm doing this. But you can't use that to push employment, employers to say, but we have to do this the right way because... I want to go home. I want to work safely. So does an employer who who comes on the show site or on an event site wearing their high vis, wearing their hard hat at the appropriate times, wearing their steel caps, and also then insisting of his team, he's the first one on the site wearing the goods, and he's the first one to say, hey, when was the last time you inspected your harness? Or, hey, where's your harness? Or, Hey, where's the double lanyard? Or the employer is the one making those um, those outright checks and balances. One could assume then that everyone on the team is going to follow the employer's lead, right? Absolutely. And if the employer is is not behaving in that manner, one can then also assume that eh, the rest of the team is going to be laissez-faire about it as well. And and I think. You take that one step further, not only is it the employer, but it is the contracting entity that's hired that staging company or rigging company. Um, they, too, have, a, have an obligation, I think, to be on site, present, on stage, providing oversight and, and saying, whoa, 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 wait, why aren't you uh, in your hard hat? There's rigors overhead. And I think that's one of the things that's missing that I think I think the younger generation guys that I'm working with now definitely have a regard for it and are and by and large are out there doing what's asked of them on for self-preservation purposes and they're devoid of this generation one um, mindset that that oh you know this is i'm just gonna do this for a second um Ahead, jump Jenna. in with a little moment of optimism because i work with a lot of students i teach health and safety at a, a university in a school production program, and I do a lot of presentations for various groups of people, production managers, stage managers, TDs, that kind of stuff. And I really feel that once people are in a room together and we can talk to them about why they're having trouble with some of the requirements or what they don't understand, most of them really do come on board. And what I've sensed over the past 10 years is that people are beginning to look at health and safety competence as a piece of their professionalism. So if they're going to be a technician, uh, that's part of, you know, maybe they know how to program six different lighting boards or they're really good 
audio mixers. But having the health and safety piece has become, I believe, and maybe I'm just Pollyanna about it, but I believe it's becoming a piece of the professionalism. It should be a barrier to entry. It should be. It should be. But, you know, when people, you know, I've had people show me I have these 10 certificates for all the safety training I've done. Um, I love that. And the the supervisors. (laughs) Yes, they should get more always. But when the supervisors get it and they're working with their teams, they need to have the backup from the boss, the big boss above them. Because if someone can go around their supervisor and get, well, you know, my feet hurt when I wear steel toes, then it just crumbles to pieces. But I am optimistic. Uh, There are so many great people who are trying to figure it out. And we see that when we bring people together, whether it's at the summit, whether it's at a conference, whether it's a half day or just a little 10 minute thing before a call. When we bring people together, I think is when we can bring that forward. I'm optimistic too. And just so you know, I'm on my fifth pair of steel toes, still trying to find the pair that fit, but I finally have. Good. Um, You know, part of, part of what caused us to craft that statement to the industry the other day um, in a call to action is that it feels like the, the ESA and all the work that everybody who contributes to the ESA and, and the other organizations that are stumping for safety are, are still shouting into an echo chamber. And it feels like, you know, we're doing a good job of talking to each other and we're not doing such a good job at motivating the rest of the world to behave better. Uh, and hence, hence the, the kind of origin of that note was, all right, let's turn up our noise. Let's, let's, let's turn up are, you know the the folks that we believe uh, should be accountable for things like this, and 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 let's start holding each other accountable for our behaviors in the industry. Um, you know, it's a little known, little did I know when this mid- mission began of the ESA that my inbox would be targeted with people wanting to show me photographs of other people behaving badly, um, and or of all of the tragic things going on around the world at all times, which may account for my early silver hair. Um, but that, but that's where we are. I get these, I get these messages in my inbox and I get these photographs of my inbox. Some of, some of them are of friends of mine behaving badly. And I've not known what to do with that information because I don't want the ESA to be, to be the kind of group that, that, that makes its headway by shaming others. And, and we've always been very delicate about our voice because we knew that nobody would want to listen if we were finger wagging. But it feels as though we've come to the place where, shucks, all this other good stuff that we're putting out there, these learning opportunities that we're helping to create, the conferences that we're be participating in or helping to create, the, op- the, the opportunity to, to be in the same room with, with great thinkers about safety isn't getting the job done. It feels like it's only getting the job done in a small place. So we've had this discussion where, geez, you know, well, maybe the ESA needs to start collecting stories and imageries of people behaving good and people behaving bad. I mean, I'm already getting these things. Some people already feel as though there's a, there's a place for these images to be stored. And, you know, quite possibly, maybe that's part of the ESA's job as well is to now let's put a call out to say, send us those images. Let's see people who are 
talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Let's hear stories of the near misses where we don't have, you know, we don't have um, a reporting mechanism in our industry at all to talk about near misses, and we should. And there are a lot of people out there who want to say, gosh, I just saw that guy or that person or that company behave really, really badly, and somebody could have been killed, and I don't know what to do with that information. And and so now we're we're thinking that perhaps the ESA needs to put that call out, and we then need to find a way to to digest those discoveries. And and of course, it it's going to make me even more accountable to myself because I know that people are going to want to take a picture of me without my PPE or me behaving badly. But oh, so what? If that makes me behave better and it makes me avoid another avoid an accident. So be it. I, I, I put the challenge out for myself as much as I do for the rest of us. Steve? Yeah, I mean, we've, at ESA, we've always focused on the carrot. You know, we, we try to inculcate young people with the culture of safety, that safety is a positive value, and they'll just grow up thinking about safety as one of their many skills and credentials. And the carrot works great most of the time. And that's why we started there. And I think that's why we'll always revert back to incentivizing good behavior rather than being finger wagging people who say, you suck. That's not really our personalities. Having said that, I think we are recognizing that we'd be foolish to ignore that the stick works for some people in some situations because positive messaging doesn't seem to be sinking in well enough. And this is an area where we don't want to be patient. We don't want to wait for a generational change. That's not the thing to do with safety, with lives. And so with some reluctance, you know, I'm, I'm channeling my inner transplanted New Englander, you know, put people in the stocks in the town square and let public shaming do its thing. It's effective for some people who just don't respond to positive reinforcement. So, you know, for years I've been giving presentations in rooms where people were blocking the exits with the stage on which I was supposed to present, you know, what our friend Tim Roberts refers to as safety porn. And I have my own pictures of this and now people have started sending me pictures of their own ridiculous setups or people doing dumb stuff. So I think what we're talking about here is simply institutionalizing it. So, you know, here's a plug for the Event Safety Alliance on its contact page. So Event Safety Alliance is eventsafetyalliance.org. Go to the About pull-down menu, and the fourth item, the fourth of four on the pull-down menu is Contact Us. And so contact us with your story, with your photo. Just tell us what it depicts and where you took it, and we will simply archive it. We're not looking to get people into trouble, but if people put themselves into trouble, there will be a repository. There should be, because again, life safety is not something about which we want to be patient. We've been going down the path of positive reinforcement, and we're still having this conversation and it's deeply upsetting, and frankly, it just cannot go on like this. So we're going to try something in addition to what we have been doing. Ethan, what do you feel about that? 
I um, <clears throat> I think it, it, a balanced approach works. Um, I think there are times when organizations are so big that the carrot isn't going to work. I think people also can do small things themselves. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and there was a safety session. And as Steve just mentioned, there was a fire exit blocked. Well, I could take a picture of it, which I did, but I could also take it on to myself to talk to the person running the session and say, hey, by the way, I realized that, you know, there's other exits in here, but you have an exit sign that can be seen, which means you can't block that exit. And to take it for an individual to take it on themselves to do those small things again, like we mentioned before, take the little bite, go up and say, listen, I'm just pointing this out. I see it. I recognize that you're doing something and chances are their reaction is probably going to be something that tells you that they know they were not doing something as well as they could could but maybe through that process we slowly change that culture where people start saying thank you for helping me thank you for bringing up something we do get complacent we've all done it we've all i can just make this one last fixture if i roll the genie or i stretch a little further um we've all been there we'll be there again but we need to slowly change that culture and related to that change in the culture thing we asked about how can we affect the change now. Something I think that people should think about is seatbelts. We went from the standpoint where if I brought up 30 years ago, hey, put your seatbelt on, I'd be looked like at like I was the oddball. Now, if you don't put on your seatbelt, you're looked at as what this is common sense. Why don't you know this? But look at how long it took for us to change that culture. It took decades. I mentioned that in an idea of the mountain in front of us should not deter each one of us individually and those people listening to us and those people who attend the ESA summit who are involved or any other safety organizations from saying, yeah, it's a huge monumental task, but we have to take that bite out of the elephant. We have to keep moving forward. And it takes all of us. It takes the individuals, it takes the organizations, it takes the big corporations. That's a good, fair point, Ethan. And, and the other good news is that the, car, the auto industry itself rose to the occasion prior to the governmental oversight coming in with respect to seatbelts. And, and that, I think, you know, initially with the ESA, that was one of the things we had hoped that there was a whole bunch of bad stuff to the indus- that was going to happen to the industry in the wake of of Indiana. And we stepped up and said, now let's wait a minute, give us a minute. We're going to fix this ourselves. And we're going to, we're going to find ways that we can preserve creativity and do so safely. Just please don't let the government get involved. Uh, You know, and and I think the seatbelt analogy is great because in the same sense that you are taking measures to protect yourself so that you can get home, you're also risk assessing. You're saying, is the risk of not wearing a seatbelt greater or worse than wearing the seatbelt? And you, and you complete a risk assessment in the blink of an eye and put your seatbelt on. The perfect analogy. Thank you, Ethan. So I would pose this question to Janet and to Jim and Steve, which is, in 2011, we had a tra- tragedy that 
changed our industry. It, it created or in, inspired you guys to create the ESA, as well as there were some short-term attempts at solving that particular situation. So in Indiana, they adopted the ANSI standard 1.2 and said, if you're putting up a structure outdoors, you will follow this. In Canada, for the um, Radiohead, the recommendation is that potentially we do, or they, I say we, you know, North Americans, <laughs> um, yeah. focus on some licensing for the companies and certification for the individuals. It is likely, potential, I should say, that with Coachella, that certain ANSI standards that exist, 1.39, which is the fall arrest standard, will be looked at and say, why was that not followed? And where I'm going with this is, if we don't change the culture, government will change it for us. OSHA will come in and say, you don't hang trusses over people's heads, period. We'll close all the amphitheaters. Um, those things will happen. And there may be situations where that has to happen, but do you think there's a balance? Do you think there's a, a, an application where certain government-influenced regulation balances what we're doing as a culture? Are, are, are we at that point where we've done what we can do and we need the big hammer to come in and, and drive it home? I, I, I wasn't thinking of it that way till just now. Thank you, Ethan. But now it feels like, well, heck, if, if our carrot and now stick approach doesn't work, God, do you think that's bad? Wait till the government comes in and starts wagging their stick around. And then we're really screwed. I still like, I still love what I do for a living. And one of the reasons I love what I do for a living is I and the band of sisters and brothers that I get to do it with get to use our creative brains to do it every day. But boy, it would be an entirely different story if I was having to follow uh, un, unusual paths for safety just for the because none of us decided to take on safety ourselves, right? and now I'm now I'm going to have to do some really weird circuitous route to get to the same end result when I could have just stepped up and done it right the first time myself. I can maybe speak a little bit to the Ontario perspective, and that is that um, after the Radiohead fatality, um, to that date we had nothing, nothing that would be of guidance to people who are putting up temporary stages. And even though I'm not a subject matter expert on that topic, um, I am involved with the advisory committee for health and safety and live performance. And so I offered to lead a working group and we created a guideline called temporary performance event structures. And it was based partly on some of the uh, material that had come out in the event safety guide. Um, it's not as comprehensive as an ANSI standard, but it is something. And there was at that time a sort of um, urgency within the Ministry of Labor, which would be like OSHA, to get something done. And so we got that done and published within a year. The recommendations that have come out of, from the inquest, at least as I've heard of them in the media, speak to um, creating an entertainment regulation that would not necessarily be new law, but it would take in all the pieces of the construction projects reg 
and the industrial establishments reg, which apply both regs to what we do, but putting them together so that all the stuff that applies to entertainment is in one regulation. Um, I think that would be much easier for our industry to work with, but I am, um, I'm not feeling, this could just be me, I'm not feeling any kind of political imperative to act on these regulations, on these re recommendations. I think it's going to really come down to being industry-led. Um, by coincidence, our, the recommendations were announced the day before the Ontario budget. Um, I haven't seen a peep of response from our Ontario government to those recommendations. So I'm not especially concerned about the government taking this on. We have laws already. They're not especially present in our space. They're not very nimble. There, there are some very, very good inspectors who do try to understand what they do and what we do, and they do make good decisions. But a show that's up and down in a couple of days, it's gone before they even know it's here. So it's going to be up to us. I think that's both a good thing and maybe a bad thing. We can bring bigger carrots, but we don't carry the same kind of stick. I hope that that can be a good thing. That's a salient point. Yeah. And I, I do, I'm a firm believer if we don't start doing it ourselves, the stick is going to be one that we don't want to, we don't want to have to deal with. Well, and, and that's, that's also part of ESA's origin story. You know, I, I distinctly remember the meeting that we had with then Indiana governor, Mitch Daniels, and he and his legislative leadership group, their priority until we, talked them out of it, was creating a legislated solution to the Indiana State Fair roof collapse. And you know, the gist of our message to them was, you know, legislators, with all due respect, this is not what you do for a living. And you know, we understand that you want to craft a solution, but we've always been a self-regulating industry. At least give us the chance to use our years of experience and our knowledge of what we do to fix this problem ourselves. And the result of that was a year later, the event safety guide. So be careful what you wish for. You know, legislative solutions will be written primarily by people who are not listeners to this podcast, who are not <laughs> members of the Event Safety Alliance, who maybe have not walked onto a show site or climbed truss with the best of intentions, they may still miss the mark entirely because it's not what they do. And so I think there's a lot of merit to remaining largely a self-regulating industry. And I will add, you know, the lawyer's comment that there is in fact a means of enforcing existing laws, regulations, and standards, which is litigation. And that does have the effect of changing practices, albeit individually. But if a major corporate employer gets ensnared in a bad lawsuit, there will be a teachable moment out, out of that lawsuit for other corporate employers. At least one can hope. I think I finally have an answer to, to Jim's question he posed at the beginning of the podcast, which is what can we do and what can we do now? Something each one of our listeners can do right now is go to uh, the ESTA webpage, ESTA.org, and click on the Technical Standards Program. 
And there you can download all the ANSI standards that ESTA has created, including the event safety working group standards, where uh, we are taking the event safety guide and creating ANSI standards from it so that they can be more useful to those in our industry. There's rigging standards, uh, control standards, all the stuff that is helpful to us in our industry. You can get them for free. You can download them for free. It costs nothing. And then you make a choice to start following those standards. Follow the follow us standard. Follow the crowd uh, standard. Follow these standards because that's a, a, a tool that you can use to help keep people safe. And God forbid you're in a situation like Steve just mentioned where you're in litigation. You're going to have the backing behind you. You didn't just make it up. So that's, you know, my answer is what can we do about it now? We can start following these standards. We can start trying to do this better. Uh, we should probably add OSHA to that as well. OSHA construction to that, yeah? Yep. OSHA 30, OSHA 10. There are a lot of things that individuals can do that they can do themselves that are not financially restrictive um, to improve them. And, and the reality is, as as a person who... I don't want to say employer, but does look at working with other people. If I look at a person who's had OSHA 10 training versus not, I can go with the person with OSHA 10 training because they, they have a knowledge base. It's a requisite on projects that I put together from scratch. Yeah. So Ethan Gilson, that was an excellent response to the original question. What can we do now? I'm going to turn to Janet Celery. From your perspective, Janet, what can we do now? I think we need to keep talking. We need to keep this top of mind. The more occasions we can give people to get together uh, and, and look at these incidents and figure out what kind of application they might have to the work we do and act on that. You know, talk about it. You know, even if you just pick three things and do those things and then come back and pick three more and do some more. Um, I think we all have the capacity to work safer and we all have the capacity to influence the people we work with. And we should do that. Jim Digby, what can we do now? Starts in the mirror, right? Um, And for me, that is, as a leader, I need to lead from the front and I need to put on my hard hat and I need to tell my riggers that they can't go up unless they're properly harnessed. And I need to hold that staging company accountable for building the stage to the engineered specs. And I have to hold that production responsible for not coming in and asking me to cut corners to overload the stage. And I need to take all those actions that I know are right so that I can go home at the end of the day, the audience can go home at the end of the day, and every member of the team that's working on site or coming as a guest to a site can go home at the end of the day unharmed and ready to do it again the next day. That leadership starts from the top. And if you are a company owner that denies that fact, you're culpable, in my humble opinion. Lead from the front. Walk the walk. That's what we do today. I think that is a great place to wrap up this podcast. Um, Thank you for listening. Jim Digby, Janet Celery, Ethan Gilson, Jacob Warwick, who has tried to remain in the background. Thank you all. Um, 
and we will be back soon, hopefully with something which is not topical because it's tragic, but just because it's a teachable moment about safety in the live event industry. So this has been the Event Safety Alliance podcast. Uh, Check out our website, eventsafetyalliance.org, and keep in touch. We will talk to you again soon.